Somebody asked me tonight, they said, where is everybody? I said, well, there's a lot. We got youth breakout session, children's church. There's about 16 people in discipleship class. So there's, a, there's great stuff going on all over. But upstairs, we're still, we're going to dive into the Word of God, and I'm excited about this because every once in a while, when we're between a series in teaching, I, I do a lot of life teaching, life series teaching on Wednesdays. When, when we're between a series, I, I come across sometimes a chapter in the Bible that is not just powerful, but it's jam-packed with life, with principles for life, which is exactly what we call this service. And so, uh, sometimes I will take an evening and just go through a chapter of the Bible. And that's exactly what I'm going to do tonight. We are going to look at the 15th chapter of John. And uh, I'm not a person who places a ton more emphasis. I won't ask for a show of hands or anything, but I'm not a person who says, well, that's just the black letters, but this is the red letters. Um, Because for some, that almost, you might think that sounds sacrilegious. Did he just say that? Red letters simply mean that they are recorded words that were spoken by Jesus Christ when he walked on this earth as God manifest in flesh. But as oneness believers, people who believe that God the Father and Jesus the Son are one and the same, uh, Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. The entire book is the word of God. So... Make the whole thing red letters for all I care, because it's all the Word of God. And so, but I get it. The red letters are words that were spoken from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And if that means something special to you, you're going to love this lesson tonight. Because the 15th chapter of John, every word is red letter. The whole chapter, there's not one black letter. The whole thing is red letters. So I went ahead and entitled it, The Red Letters of John 15. And one of our seminary professors might see this online and be like, what? He's emphasizing red letters. Hopefully they'll tune in and hear the intro there. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we're so thankful for every person who is in this building watching online. God, we just know that you have, anytime we open your word, we have the potential to have a life change. Anytime we open your word, God, you can speak to us in a marvelous way that will impact us in in just, in such a miraculous way. So please let that be so tonight. Lord, speak through me and let our hearts and minds be receptive. In your name we pray. Amen. John 15, the gospel of John 15, picks up where Jesus is with his disciples in Jerusalem. Actually, everything in chapters 13 to 17 took place in Jerusalem. The precise location isn't specified, but John 18, 1 says, afterward, it says, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. So, John 15 is spoken at the, at the Passover meal, wherever exactly that was. After Jesus washes his disciples' feet, Judas gets up and leaves to betray him in chapter 13. In chapter 14, that's where we have Philip says, hey, just show us the Father, and it suffices us. And Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you such a long time, and you still don't get it? That's, that's the Gary Dornbach version. And then Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. The 14th chapter ends with Jesus saying, come, let us be going. But 
before they head out, Jesus takes time to begin talking to them. And everything that we have now is recorded in the 15th chapter of John. And so he says, come on, let's be going. But have you ever done that? Anybody ever go, all right, come on, kids. Anybody ever get their kids together and you're like, it's time to leave. And you get them to the door. And you get in another conversation. This happens at our small group at our house all the time. It's probably because I have a big mouth, you know, like Andrew and Whitney and Tim and Heather. You know, they're trying to get their kids out the door, and I'm following them to the door. And then their kids just scatter throughout the house, and they have to start over again. And so, uh, so maybe this kind of happened, you know, that, uh, that and it happens with Jose and Senia, too. Usually it's I'm trying to, she's trying to take her food, and I'm going, hang on, I want to leave. What? No, 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 leave some of that here. I want it to go play. Don't take that all. So, but we do this, and it appears that that kind of thing happened here. That as I hit, come on, let's be going. And all of a sudden, it doesn't appear they left. They're still in the same place. And he just begins to pour out his heart to them in the 15th chapter. And Jesus begins explaining the relationship between himself and his followers. And he was about to leave them. He was about to be crucified and buried in a tomb and. And then life as they knew it about traveling, walking, seeing Jesus, it was going to change. He was going to fill them with his spirit. But he was about to leave them, and he wanted them to know a few last pieces of information for them to hold on to, truths to encourage them. He knew that they would be tempted to leave this way of living. The, the pressure would be strong to go back to the law of Moses. So he starts by telling them how it's necessary that by faith, you got to abide in me. So he takes the first portion, he hits that. He also knew they were going to be tempted to grow apart from one another because sometimes when things don't go as planned, it causes a chasm, a divide. And so he emphasizes you need to love one another. And lastly, he knew that they'd be tempted at times to, to quit and walk away from their apostolic calling. And again, remember the context, Judas just got done getting up and walking out. Imagine... They didn't even know. Okay, they, they, remember that scripture? We just covered this in the Apostle series. None of them, Ju, Judas was such a good, a, a good a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Scammer, that's a good word, thank you. That they didn't even know he was the guy that was betraying Jesus. But imagine the heartbreak of Jesus as he continues to, well, he washed their feet. Judas lets him wash his feet. Judas gets up and leaves. And now the Lord is starting to pour out his heart to the rest of the people there. They're totally oblivious to the fact that Judas is on his way to betray him, literally as he speaks. And with this broken heart, Jesus starts to pour out his, his, his thoughts and his heart to his disciples. And he starts saying, abide in me. Love one another. And don't walk away from this. Why? Somebody just literally walked away from this. And so these are three major themes that if I had to choose themes, these are three major themes in that chapter. So let's look at it. John 15, 1, he starts off and he says, and we've probably read this many times. Many of us, if you've read the Bible, you probably have read this. That looks awesome, guys. I appreciate that. It says, I am the true grapevine, or vine in King James Version, and my father is the gardener. Cool, let's keep moving. No, 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 let's not keep moving. Let's stop, because contextually, we want to know what was being said at that point. Because to us, we just think like a little garden in our backyard, and like, he's the gardener, that's nice, oh, that's sweet, let's move on. No, no, let's look at 
first century literature and context. In the Old Testament, the vine is frequently used as a symbol for Israel. By the way, I have a whole slew of scripture references, and I'm not going to bore you with going through all those. If there's anything I say that you don't totally trust, come see me afterwards, and I'll get you the scripture references. But there are a slew of scripture references that says the vine was used for Israel. Yet it's usually employed as a, as a sign of disobedient Israel that has become wild and dried up. It will therefore, Ezekiel says, be burned with fire because it's ripe for judgment. That's typically what we're reading about with the vine. So, in the Old Testament text, if Israel's the vine or the vineyard, then the Lord is viewed as the vine dresser or the gardener. But what is totally different here in what John writes is the role of Jesus and his disciples. In this metaphorical description, the father is still portrayed as the gardener, just like it would be in the Old Testament. But now Jesus is the vine, not Israel. And the disciples, the followers of God, people like us, are pictured as the branches. They would have definitely been aware of the whole vine language. They, they knew that. They, they were students of Old Testament Torah. They were students of Scripture. And the vine was mentioned a whole bunch of times, not just one, two, three, like a whole bunch. So when he says, I'm the vine, instantly they're going to be going, what? He starts off with an attention grab. I'm the vine. But now Jesus catches him off guard with this new insertion of an old image, and he changes it radically. The vine now is hardly in any danger of judgment like it would be in the Old Testament, because Israel's the vine in the Old Testament. Oh, man, we're in trouble. We need to repent. We need to get back. Jesus says, I'm the vine. Whoa, what? Hang on a second. Jesus, the vine, appears to stand between the vineyard keeper or the gardener and the branches, you got the gardener here, the branches here, and I'm the vine. I'm the one in the middle. I'm the one you're supposed to be connected to, and, and, and I'm kind of a mediator. I'm a middleman. Paul alludes to that, does he not, in 1 Timothy 2.5? He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, because Adam and Eve, sin separates them from God. They, God walked with them in the, in the garden in the cool of the day. Sin separates and it causes the divide. God creates them from relationship, but sin breaks that apart. And really, the, the whole rest of the Bible is the pursuit of God closing the gap. And now it says, hey, I'm the vine. Whoa, what? Yep, you're the branches. Like Paul says, I'm the mediator. I'm the middleman. I'm the one that bridges the divide between a perfect God and sinful humankind. As a mediator, Christ removed that separation. It pictures Jesus as a negotiator who brings in a new arrangement between God and human beings. Only through Christ can sinful human beings come to forgiveness. And here's another interesting twist. You ready for this? I had this message done today. I'm reviewing my notes, and this is a brand new insertion. They don't have this scripture. We're not even going to look at the scripture. I'll just tell you the story. This is neat. God is the gardener, Old Testament and New Testament. Shake your head if you agree with that and understand that. As the man Christ Jesus, in his humanity, he became the vine, the vineyard, the, the mediator. After his resurrection, 
He pays the price. He's our Savior. After his resurrection, he comes walking from his tomb, and he runs into somebody. Who is that somebody? Mary. Mary looks at him and supposes him to be the gardener. Why is that even in the Bible? Why take the time to tell us? She says she could have just said, hey, she didn't recognize him. Why does scripture say Mary looked at him and she thought he was the gardener? I think there's some depth there that it's intentionally put there. Why? Because that man that had just rose from that tomb was not a co-equal deity of the gardener. He was the gardener himself. That she looks at him and says, gee, he's not just the, the vine anymore, okay? When he rose from that dead, what? That, that was God manifest in flesh. Oh, I thought he was the gardener. Well, in a way, he was. I thought that was neat. That's free. You don't even have to pay extra for that. Verse 2 says, he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce the fruit. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remember, he's telling them this all in that Passover upper room. Uh, well, not upper room. That Passover, that room that they had secured for that, that uh, Passover meal. Gardeners cut away dead branches and trim healthy branches so that they will produce more fruit. Notice the passage says he, or God, is the one who prunes the branches that don't bear fruit. Let's keep that in mind because we might look around and see some people around here that aren't bearing fruit. But whose job is it to prune them? It's not ours. I've actually heard this part of a message preached a couple of different ways. This part of the passage, you need to bear fruit. Bearing fruit, I've heard it preached as you need to reach lost people. But then I've also heard it preached that the fruit of the Spirit needs to manifest itself in our own individual lives. I love the fact that God is not limited, like, in His Word. Do you mean this, this, or this? I think God would go, all of it. Bear fruit in the lives of others. Bear fruit, reach other people. Bear fruit in your own life. Let them see the fruit of my spirit in you. Can the fruit of the spirit in our own lives actually be one of the biggest reasons that bears fruit in the lives of others? Meaning, when someone looks at us and they say, man, when I interact with that person, I just feel love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. I think that that could make where somebody, instead of just, you need Jesus. If he came back, would you go to heaven or hell? Let me teach you a Bible study. But if someone says, man, I just feel love, patience, kindness, it's incredible. I want what you have. Remember, fruitfulness is the result of a, of a, of a life-giving connection to the vine. If you prune a bush, anybody here do any gardening, fruit, anything like that? Well, you know, if you're unsure which branches are healthy, you just look at the time when the, when the fruit comes to the tree. When the flowers bud, you can see, well, that one ain't doing well. That can be, uh, oh, that's so judgmental to the tree. It's really not. I can just look and there's apples on that one and 
That one has nothing. So that one is probably not doing well. So you prune that. You get that out of there. You got to be careful, though. I had a tree, a beautiful tree in my front yard. It's one of these trees. If you've been to my house, they have like, I don't even know the name of it. Brother Keith, do you know the name of that tree in my front yard? He's the only one that might know it. It's a weeping something. I don't know. It's not a weeping willow. That's in my backyard. And that, anyway, this one has a million branches that all like go together and stuff. So I got out there when my first year living there and I'm just snip, snip, snip. I'm out there for 30 minutes and I look to the other side and I'm like, I am going to be here for as long as Noah built the ark. So I'm like, I can, I grabbed some of the dead stuff and pulled it down. Tried to follow it, and I got a cut right there. And all of a sudden, I looked back, and the whole, like, top back of the tree came off. And I looked down, and there was a lot of living stuff mixed in with the dead stuff. I totally had an understanding of Scripture about plucking it up and, yeah, that whole thing. And I just stood there, and then I was like, like a criminal. I was like, I have to destroy the evidence before my wife gets home. And she came home and was like, what happened to our tree? And I'm like, what? <laughs> the whole back is like missing. Now it's like this. And then it just, now every time you come to my house, you guys are going to pull up and be like, dear Lord. But a branch is not a self-contained entity, and neither is a Christian disciple. A branch separated from the supply of nourishment cannot bear fruit. Neither can a Christian disciple. Fruit bearing for the disciple is totally dependent on the direct connection to Jesus. That's why he immediately goes on to say in verse 4, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. So notice he's talking to the disciples, telling them this. But this is an age-old message that still goes for us as disciples here in the New Testament church. That where we live right now. He says, yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them, they'll produce fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But yet we have a lot of people today that live and think, oh, I'm going to see if that's really true. No, apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile and burned. Man, it sounds like such a rough, mean God. No, it sounds like a God that's emphasizing, stay connected to me. Abide in me. And throughout the Old Testament, God's anger is linked to fire. And fire is often used as a symbol of judgment, both in Old and New Testaments. And of course, fire is repeatedly used in, in scenes that we read about in Revelation and end times. But he says in verse 7, But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you're truly my disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. One of Jesus' favorite words that was used throughout the New Testament is translated. The translated word has three, meaning, has three meanings in English. It's remain, stay, and abide. 
He said it so many times in the New Testament. Remain, stay, abide. Remain, stay, abide. I, I, I hate, I kind of hate it. It's a pet peeve when preachers go, if you don't get anything else, get this. It's like, dude, come on. I want Well, then why am I listening to the whole rest of your message tonight? I'm going to say it. If you get anything tonight, get those words. Remain, stay, abide. He knew that our ability to bear fruit would be based on our connection to him. Verse 9, he says, I have loved you even as the Father's loved me. Remain in my love. <laughs> Did you get a pattern of what he's giving us here? How many times already has he said, remain, abide, stay? When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Abide, remain, stay, don't leave, over and over again. Jesus really is emphasizing to his followers, don't look anywhere else. Why? Why is he going to? Because he is at the Passover meal. He just washed their feet. Judas just left to go betray him. Time is ticking away right now, and he knows I am getting ready to be crucified. This phase of our relation, this is my farewell tour as long as we've known each other like this. The face-to-face -face interaction, the communion, the eating meals together, it's almost done. And so you got to think, okay, you don't ever want to put em emphasis more on, oh, John 3 is not as important as John 6. It's not as important as John 10. But think about it. This is it. This is like some of the last stuff he's going to say. So you got to think, man, this is pretty important stuff when he's going, guys, I'm not going to be with you longer. I'm going to send a comforter, but listen to me. These things are going to come. Stay. Remain. Abide. Don't look anywhere else. There could, why? Because he knew I'm getting ready to go. Just like to us, you are not always going to feel the presence and power of God as strong as these guys did right there, as strong as you did at an altar, maybe on Sunday, maybe, maybe Wednesday. You're weeping, you're crying, you're singing songs, you're feeling God near. But you're not always going to feel him that strongly next to you. And so Jesus, he knows, man, I'm getting ready to go. You all are going to have your foundation shook here shortly. But just remember, stay, abide, remain. Don't look anywhere else. Stick with me. At one point, Jesus looked at his remaining disciples at another story, and he looks at them. A whole bunch of people were leaving. He just got done preaching a hard message. And he looks at him and he says, are you guys going to leave too? Walking this way. I'll say, there's, there's, there's churches all over America. That you could go and sit on a pew and you will feel good about yourself. And they're going to tell you really good things that make you feel really happy. But you know what? When you say, I'm, I'm going to be an apostolic Pentecostal believer, that's not a religion. That is, I'm going to align my life with the experience of Pentecost, the doctrine of the apostles. And when you preach from the Word of God, if you preach from the Word of God long enough, you're going to have to preach a message that is going to convict and challenge. You cannot preach for 52 weeks out of the Bible and not preach a challenging and convicting message. So, 
if that's why here there's going to be a lot, you, you could hide, you could feel good about it. Just say, for, for here, we aim to, man, I want to feel good. I want to feel joy. I want to, but here in this pulpit, when I preach from God's word, you're going to hear about repentance. Repentance that says, I got to turn away from my life of sin and I need to make my direction going a different way way. You're going to hear about receiving God's spirit according to the Bible, what the scripture says. You're going to hear about sanctification being a process. You're going to hear about holiness, separation, commitment, and I'm going to preach those things. And that's why, you know what? We're probably not going to grow at the same rate as maybe some of the other churches might. But for me, I, was, I never came here and said, my goal is to build a crowd. When I walked here and, and said, I'm going to be the pastor of the church, my goal was I want to make disciples. And so Jesus, he didn't just preach miracle signs and wonders. He sometimes would preach a message that was so convicting that the whole, the whole, obviously a whole chunk of the group, it wasn't one or two, or he wouldn't have stopped everything and said, look at him go. Are you guys going to leave me too? There was obviously enough people that walked away from that message and said, man, this is too hard. This is too out there. I'm not ready for this. That he looks at them that remain and says, where are you at? Are you with me or or not? Are you going to leave too? Why? Because it takes commitment. He immediately covers How exactly to remain in my love? He says, when you obey my commands, you remain in my love. He tells us right there. I want to remain in your love. How? Just tell me how. When you obey my commands, you remain in my love. In our 21st century of living, we talk about the five love languages. And they're great. And I think you should know those for your spouse. You got acts of service, quality time, physical touch, uh, gifts. Words of affirmation. Yep, I should know that because that's one of mine. You don't want to know what the love language of Jesus is? It's real simple. He tells us. It's obedience. His love language is obedience. When it's in the word of God, it's not obedience or disobedience to humankind or a specific religion. It's obedience to God Almighty. And what's the goal of Jesus calling for this kind of obedience? Is it because he just doesn't want us happy? He wants to punish us. He wants to be domineering as our king. No, he tells us in verse 11, I have told you these things that you will be filled with my joy. Your joy will overflow. Hey, I want you to obey me, abide in me, stay, don't leave. Everybody's going to try and tell you different things. There's all going to be mixed messages out there. And yes, what I'm preaching, it's sometimes hard. People, sometimes they're going to walk out. They're going to leave. They're not going to stick around. But will you? Because if you don't abide with me, stay with me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Stay connected. If you do, I'm going to give you joy. It's going to be overflowing.
is the way we live with hearts filled with overflowing joy. That, 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 that the purpose of abiding in the, vine, in the vine is to provide the sense of delight to those who are authentic disciples of Christ. Even though they might face pain or persecution. I know, hey, if I abide, this is where true joy is. Judas walked away. Did he experience true joy? No, no, no. Within a chapter, he's hung on a tree. He killed himself. Oh, when I walked away from being apostolic, meaning the apostles, Judas quit being apostolic. He walked away. And boy, what liberty he experienced. He realized within a few short moments, man, this was not all it's cracked up to be. Something hurts right here. Something's empty. Something's missing. We see a slight shift now in this chapter, and it goes from abiding in him to loving others. Verse 12, he said, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. Well, that's pretty big. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. (laughs) That's a pretty big challenge, kind of like I say when he's when just in one verse. Paul says, hey, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and was willing to give himself for it. Got it? Yeah, no problem. Oh, yeah. I'm just supposed to love Jackie like Jesus loves me. Oh, that's easy. That's the most selfless, sacrificial love in the history of anything we, I say humankind, it extends beyond humankind, anything we ever know. And he says, love like that. So now he tells him, he says, hey, abide in me, but know that if I'm the vine and you're the branches and you're connected to me, you can't just love me as the vine. You got to love the other branches. And love them the way I love you. He hasn't died on the cross yet, but he says to him, and I'll tell you this, greater love had no man than this. That he laid down his life for his friends. Do you think that stuck with them in just a few short days when Jesus was hanging on a cross and those guys were hiding out, crying? Yeah, I wonder if that crossed their mind. Remember what he said? He paid a price for us. Wow, he must have really loved us. He must have really loved us. Sure, he's our God. He's our ruler, he's our king, he's our judge, he's our authority. But you know what? Don't forget, he's your friend. He created Adam and Eve for a relationship at the beginning of time. He called disciples, not because he was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I need some help. No, he wanted to train them and empower them to take this gospel message out. But also as a man, God manifest in flesh, tempted in all manner and points yet we, as we are yet without sin, Hebrews says, he desired relationship. He traveled with these guys, ate with these guys, prayed next to these guys. He wanted relationship. I believe he was stating here that he was their friend. Why? Immediately he makes it clear how to maintain that friendship. In verse 14 he says, you are my friends. If you do what I command. Now, that wouldn't be a very good friend just if we were. (laughs) 
We talk to our kids about this. That's not a good friend, you know. Like, hey, I'm only going to be your friend if you do what I say. doesn't work for us. But for him, he created us, and he says, hey, you're my friends if you obey me. That's clear enough, isn't it? There was one man called a friend of God in the Old Testament. It's Abraham. Because he did what God said over and over again. In Exodus 33, God also says to Moses, a man, like a man speaks to his friend. So you might have two references there, but he doesn't come out and say, Moses, my friend. This is one of the highest compliments that can be found in Scripture. Wouldn't you love for God to look at you and say, she's my friend. He's my friend. I want that. Well, if I want that, then my life has to align with his commands in obedience. He says it right there. Obedience doesn't dictate his love for us. Let me make this clear. Obedience does not dictate God's love for us. His love, he loves all of humankind. But in order to be a friend in a close relationship, Scripture makes it clear there must be obedience. God loves me just the way I am. You are absolutely right. No doubt. He loves you right where you are. God is my friend. That's where you're wrong. Because if my life is living in disobedience, I don't regard his verses, his requests. I don't regard anything he says. It's not a value to me. It's not worth the commitment. I don't think I, I don't even want to do it. I don't think it's worth it. He says in his word, you are my friends if you obey my commands. And then he says, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now, just to clarify this, we're like, whoa, then I wouldn't have wanted to follow him. Just walked around. I was like, slaves, come over here. Help me with this. That was not the case in first century and even earlier than that. Being chosen by a rabbi was a it was an honorable thing. And you didn't just go apply. A rabbi would choose you. A rabbi would look and say, follow me. That's the way a rabbi did it. And so Jesus wasn't, or, uh, he was just a guy, a carpenter's son. Not a lot of people respected him like maybe some of the rabbis that would be at the temple, the tabernacle. And so for Jesus to look and say, follow me, that was an honorable thing, at least for them. And so for a rabbi, they would choose their followers, and the disciples of whatever rabbi they followed were considered servants or slaves. That's the, what, the way they referred to them. But here in this case, Jesus says, hey, I'm not calling you slaves. A master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now, you are my friends. That's a, that's a big deal. In that, I mean, even today, but especially back then, that's a huge deal for him to look at him and say, listen, you're my friend since I've told you everything that the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. See, there you go. That's that rabbi relationship. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you're asking for using my name. He looks at them and says, I have confided in you in a way a rabbi doesn't confide in his followers. This means you're not just a follower. You are my friend. And then he says, this is my command. Love each other. 
This just reiterates what Jesus had just said two chapters earlier in John 13. And when he says in 13, 34, he says, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I've loved you. You should love each other. So he repeats this again two chapters later. He says, Your love, one for another, will prove to the world. Or in other words, bear fruit to the world that you're my disciples. Jesus just got done talking about bearing much fruit. If we stay connected to the vine, Jesus Christ, we'll bear fruit. And one of the other ways we bear fruit is to love one another. And if we love one another, guess what? That is one way that we prove that we're connected to the vine. But guess what? Followers, disciples, we're called to be just like their master in every way. Well, that didn't just include doctrinal approach or lifestyle or loving but it also meant suffering. And so Jesus goes on in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. So again, if you fit in so well in this world that you never have a hard time standing for what you believe in, chances are there might be a little too much world in you. Jesus said, hey, the world would love you if you belong to it, but you're no longer a part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, to come out of the world. What is holiness? I just got a good hunch that the preacher on Sunday might actually be covering that. Jesus says, I called you out of this world, so it hates you. If Christians think that the message of love of Christ will generally be well-received in the world, they're in for a big surprise, just as the disciples had to learn. The love of Jesus doesn't sell well in Times Square, New York, Piccadilly Circus in London, any more than it did in the Villa Dolorosa in this first century of Jerusalem. Because why? Because that type of love requires commitment and obedience. So that didn't sell well in the first century, and it still doesn't sell well in the 21st century. That's why people, a lot of people will just say, I just want to focus on the love of Christ. He loves me. He saved me. Where He loves me where I am. I come where as you are. And that's fine. But anybody who came to Jesus and spent any time with him, they changed radically. Because that love initiated something in them that said, I want to be different. Disciples of Jesus according, are accordingly advised to take this section very seriously as they contemplate their relationship with the world. Verse 20 says, do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. Again, as we're reading through this, remember the context. Judas just left, just got done washing their feet. He said, come on, let's be going. They may have been standing at this point. They may have been by the door getting ready to leave. And Jesus knows, I'm, I'm getting ready to go. They're going to they're gonna arrest me. I'm going to be crucified here. Just very short amount of time, just days away. And he says, it's almost time. And so he starts saying, to them, just remember, since they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And if you would listen to me, if they'd listen to me, they would listen to you. He says, they will do all of this to you 
because of me, for they rejected the one who sent me. He said, they would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them, but now they have no excuse for their sin. I don't know if you realize how heavy the words of that last verse are. But before he gets to that point, he says to them, he says, listen, you're going to deal with things because of me. Don't take it personally. You're no, if you're, the slave is just like the master. Even though you're my friend, you're a follower of me. And when you go through this, just like they persecuted him for his stance, even in the 21st century, you start saying, I believe in this. I stand for this. I'm going to preach this. I'm going to live this way. I'm going to be separate in this way, in that way. People are going to look at me like, are you kidding me? Do you really believe that? You still deal with that today this day but then he says to them he says and so just remember that but remember this also they wouldn't be guilty if I didn't come but the fact that I have come and they have heard my word they have no excuse for their sin and I've actually said this in Bible study I've actually said this wrapping up a Sunday morning service recently but I say this in Bible studies a lot Bible studies are awesome. Coming to church is awesome. Being a principles for life is great. You learn so many things in Scripture. And so it's, 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 it's incredible because the Word of God comes to life in many ways as you study His Word. But there's a downside to that. You will never be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know. I had no clue I was supposed to repent. Nobody ever told me about water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. They didn't preach about speaking in tongues and the spirit infilling. I never knew any of this stuff. Nobody said this stuff. Because if his word wasn't there and we never heard it, that's one thing. But he says, they wouldn't be guilty if I didn't speak to them. But now... I've spoken, John spoken, Zechariah, Nehemiah, and, and uh, Obadiah, and Joel, and Hezekiah, and, and he could start to say, they all spoke. In the 21st century, there's a whole bunch of people still preaching, and I think that I'm one of them. And so, there's beauty in learning the Word of God, but there's also a danger. What, what's the danger? You will never be able to stand in the presence of God and say, I didn't know. I never heard. Nobody ever told me. And that's heavy. And I'm wrapping up. He says, anyone who hates me also hates my father. Why? Because they're one and the same. All that father language can be so confusing to some people, but it's not a separate deity. He worked with what they understood, and what they understood was the Old Testament language of God and the Father. And so he would say, hey, he would talk from the, the he would approach it from the Father lens, and then in John 10, 30, he'd go, but I and my Father are one. And so he'd start with what they, what they knew and then work into the unknown. He says, anyone who hates me hates my Father. If I hadn't done such miraculous things among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it's written, they, they, they have seen everything I did, yet still hate me and my father. This fulfills what's written in the scriptures. They hated me without a cause. That's quoting from Psalms. 
He says, because that's all they had. They didn't have the New Testament. They're living the New Testament. But so much of Jesus' ministry was a fulfillment of prophecy. And he says, all this is due, all this is, is we already knew that nothing surprised Jesus. Judas betrayed him. It was prophesied. Nothing surprised him. Did it hurt? No doubt. When that group of disciples walked away and he looked at his disciples, for that to be recorded in Scripture, I doubt he said, <laughs> look at that. Are you guys leaving too? I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind that there were probably tears in his eyes because he loved those people so much that walked away. And in one small, tiny little way, that's where I can relate to Jesus. Because I have seen people who have sat in these pews, walked this way, and they leave, and my heart breaks. It breaks. Because I know that they were taught and preached truth, and they walked away from it. And he says hate him without a cause. And having concluded the previous section on the hatred of the world, the focus shifts to Jesus' concern for the disciples and the supplying of the divine resource of the Spirit to assist them in coping with the hostility that they are about to experience. And so he ends by saying, hey, abide in me, love one another, don't walk away from your calling. Stick with it. Do what you know. And he says, but I'm going to send you an advocate. The advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. You must also testify about me because you've been with me from the beginning of my ministry. And he continues, I think, in, Acts, in John 16, I think the next chapter, he starts to talk even more about the infilling of the Spirit. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. It's not only our advocate, but it's our guide and our strength so that when the rest of the world is shaking around us, we can say, I have an advocate for me. It's the comforter. It is the Holy Spirit that now fills me. You can stand to your feet tonight. And here we are, a couple of thousand years later. You can put up that three. A couple thousand years later. And the same three things are still there to challenge us in 2019. Same, uh, slightly different issues. You know, we're not fed, being fed to lions. We're not, people aren't being crucified, but there still is a very much a society that is anti or against Christ. A people who are still trying to stand for Christ, who are going to be ridiculed for what they believe in and questioned. And I think that message still rings true as he sat and he said, let's go. Wait, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Abide in me. And he just starts speaking to them. No doubt they probably got their sandals, cloak, and they're like, did he just say he's the vine? They always call Israel the vine. And all of a sudden he just started speaking from his heart. A lot of good things to say. 
But it can be boiled down, I think, a lot to this. And it's what I leave you with as we begin to find a place to pray and just contemplate these words before we leave. Abide in Jesus. Love one another. And stand strong when the world stands against you. Why? Because I promise you in the end it's going to be worth it. You won't even have to wait to the end. Because then if you live that way, his words, not mine, your joy will be overflowing. Your joy. Oh, that just means living for God is always going to be easy. No, I didn't say that. But joy is not something that comes from circumstance. It comes from internally being connected to the vine. And that's where I can bear fruit. So I challenge somebody as you find a place to pray tonight. Abide in Jesus. Love one another. Stand strong when the world stands against you. Don't give up. Don't leave. Don't walk away. If he says, are you going to leave too? Let it be a resounding, absolutely not. Like Peter, where are we going to go? You alone have the words to eternal life. There's nowhere else I want to go. Challenge me. Convict me. Push me beyond my comfort zone. God, I want to follow you. Not just because it's convenient or easy, but because who alone, who else has the words to eternal life? So I will abide in you. I will love one another. And I'm going to stand strong.